Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was the Undertones and Teenage Kicks, one of the anthems, one of the great anthems, really. Uh, way back from 1978, I've got the huge pleasure to welcome the lead guitarist in the Undertones here, Damien O'Neill. Welcome, Damien. Thank you, Jason. Such a pleasure to have you here, and we'll be playing a selection of tracks from your journey in, in music since since Teenage Kicks, really. So it's, mm-hmm. was that the first or one of the first tracks that you, you recorded? It was, well, it was our first proper recording in a studio, in a real recording studio. We had done demos um, before that, but, you know, and not very... The place, the, basically, the sort of studios we did it for the demos were kind of amateurish. You know, they weren't... They were four, sorry, four tracks, six tracks or something like that. So it was our first time in a... I think it was 16-track studio. Um, might have been 24, no, 16-track, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Wizard Studios in Belfast, paid for by Terry Hooley, of course, from Good Vibrations label. Yeah, that, that funny, funny enough, it was all downhill after that. <laughs> because I say that, well, in a funny way, because I don't think we ever um, made a record sound as good as Tennis Kicks after that, well, the, especially on the song Tennis Kicks anyway not, you know the EP was called Tennis Kicks obviously but the actual that you know the three two two minute whatever it is song Tennis Kicks it sounds amazing it's the guitars I know for sure that guitars were never bettered ever after that in the other really more expensive studios you know and with the undertones or with that better motion or whatever um, it just leaps they just I don't know it's just that song it's not just the song, it's the sound. Mm. It's, there's something about it that the guitars especially leap out at you. Um, they're really high in the mix. and just There's just something wonderful about it. It really is. It still, to this day, sounds fresh, you know. It absolutely does. It, it just doesn't date. I think it will just stand there as um, Indeed. a timeless song. I've read that it was actually quite a, a quick process in recording the track as well. Yeah, we, well, we did four tracks because uh, for, for, it was an EP. We did four tracks in a day, and then we went back the following week to mix it. So it was took two days, really. So yeah, within two months or three months or something, we were playing on our little Fidelity record player in, in our living room. And the thing was, <laughs> well, we were really excited, of course, when we got the records. Hmm. Terry sent us, I don't know, it's just a test press or something. And um, we put it on. <laughs> we, <laughs> we thought it sounded terrible. 
we really, <laughs> little did we, we just didn't know. We hadn't a clue. We really thought it sounded weedy, and um, it took us a <laughs> took us a while to realize, shit, this sounds great. <laughs> this is really good. <laughs> so we weren't the we were our, we were a bit um, I don't know we were a wee bit too scaven about it at the time. Um, but yeah, once we heard it on the radio properly with John Peel playing it, it was like, wow, okay, this sounds great. So yeah. One of my recent podcasts was was about John Peel, and he was the one of the prime factors that um, you became as big as you are, and that that song yeah. became a timeless one. Well, absolutely. I wouldn't be speaking to you obviously if it wasn't for John. You know, John Peel. Yeah, we got very lucky. A lot of bands say success is due due to timing, and as well as talent. For us, it was a bit of both, but ta- definitely timing for. You know, and luck that John Peel championed that record. Because um, if he didn't, then he, you know we, yeah, it would have been released, but it would have nobody would, you know, probably would be considered mm-hmm. a sort of lost classic now. You know, yeah, I would say it would still be up there. With, but you know, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't, we wouldn't have got a career of it. We would have broken up and blah blah. blah. So we were very very lucky for John. It seems remarkable that you were just out of school in a way and you were in Derry and I don't think Derry at the time and, and Northern Ireland was the, the centre of the music industry to say the least. No, it certainly wasn't and we were the only punk band in Derry and we we were the only band writing our own songs as well. So we were out in a limb and we, we definitely felt isolated, um, not just the fact that it was in Northern Ireland but the fact that we were in Derry and at least in Belfast it was a bit of a punk scene, you know, and um, we Rudy and the outcast stuff with fingers and all that. We really felt uh, isolated in Derry, but the, even though we'd been going for a couple of years before that, playing, you know, playing the Casbah, we didn't really know anybody in Belfast. So, in fact, the first time we went to Belfast was to record, was to do sort of a Battle of the Bands concert, and then we did Tedious Kicks the next day. So that's the first time we ever really seen any Belfast punk, punk bands. So there was, um, you know... There wasn't much camaraderie back then. Not well, not initially only at the start. So yeah, it was us. We we had this kind of mm. us against the world attitude, you know, which kind of helped. I think that really helped us. And because we played, because we had this residency in the Casbah, this pub called the Casbah, we kind of honed the songs down. We learned our, learned how to be good at songwriting and how to well, basically learned how to more or less play as well. Mm. So we were quite tight. By the time we we went into the Wizard Studios, we were really um, we were kind of ready to make a record. We were just you know we we t- was kind of done more or less live. And we knocked it out pretty quickly. Looking at the release dates of the the Good Vibrations EP of Teenage Kicks and the Sire single of Teenage Kicks, it only seems a matter of weeks. So was it that quick? It was actually. I think um, the record came out in September. John Peel started playing it. And Sire, they were they came to see us in the Casbah within two weeks, I think, of John Peel playing it, uh, which was the last time we ever played the Casbah. And they snapped, well, it took a few weeks for us to, um, inverted commas, negotiate. Hmm. That's another story um, some, for some other time. But, um, yeah, we signed to Sire within weeks, and they'd, they re-released Teenage Kicks with a different sleeve uh, in, Oct- on Oct- in October. And then we were on top of the pops within a week or two of that. So it was quite like a whirlwind. It was amazing. It was really, really incredible. Um, yeah, it was like a dream come true. Were you 
almost straight into the studio to record your debut LP as well? Uh, no, we had a tour lined up with the Rizillos. Ah. We were, they were on fire, same as us. Um, and that happened late October, early November, 78. We did about six shows with them and then they broke up. Mm. They sort of self-imploded. So our tour got cancelled and um, we decided to, we went over again to London in December to record Get Over You. Yeah. That was going to be our next single. It was the obvious single with Roger Bisharian. That was the first time we worked with Roger Bisharian, a proper producer. Mm. So then it wasn't until January uh, 79 to we went back to London again to do the LP, the first LP. Was it your brother John who did the bulk of the songwriting at the time? Yes. John always more or less did most of the songwriting, yeah. Because yeah. John was the leader of the band, really. He, he definitely was. He was kind of called the shots. And even though he would say he wasn't quick at picking up things on guitar, you know, back he didn't have the greatest ears, so to speak. He was he he had this amazing talent for writing songs and lyrics, and he was yeah. We kind of followed John, you know, and me and Mickey would chip in with things as well, occasionally, and Billy maybe. So yeah, he uh, yeah we obviously we wouldn't be anywhere without John. Um, yeah, we're so lucky again. Back to that, we're just so lucky we had these. This great songwriter.
about a, a year later with Mickey, you uh, co-wrote My Perfect Cousin, which is a, a great anthem for the undertone. So you, you, your confidence as a songwriter, I assume, built? I think so. By the end, um, it was the next second LP. Perfect, my Perfect Cousin actually was, I think it was, um, we kind of, we, we were big fans of the Kinks and the Who. Mm. And telling, you know, those bands had some great songs, you know, with stories, telling stories, especially who sell out and stuff, whatever. So we, I think me and Mickey, we always, we were kind of, kind of witty, you know, we, we liked writing witty songs as well as just, uh, rather than just, John always did the, the songs about uh, not getting the girl, whereas hmm. we, <laughs> we were more stupid things. So My Perfect Cousin was a perfect example of that. It was kind of like a, a bitter kind of song about, a cousin that uh, he didn't like it that always was favoured by your your mother or whatever. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a cousin like that, so it was perfect. It was it was an ideal subject for a song. Um, I, I mean, I just remember doing it with Mickey. Actually, with a couple, there was a couple of friends of ours chipped in with a few words. He never got a credit either. <laughs> um, but I remember doing it one afternoon. And it was just great fun, you know, trying to write, get these stupid words to rhyme. And, and me and Mickey still argue about who came up with which lines. You know, the Sabudio line's mine, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the, the University Challenge, she thinks that I'm a cabbage hit to you. I think that's Mickey's line. Um, but yeah. So, yeah. And we always, as we always say to John, it was our only top 10 hit. <laughs> We're always reminding John, <laughs> see, you might have wrote most of the other singles, but ours was a top 10 hit. <laughs> You've mentioned that the Kinks is a bit of an influence. And yeah. The style of songwriting fits that. British and Irish references, you know, Sabutio, etc. You, you just would not get that in, in the US. No, for, I suppose it is a very uh, British-Irish thing, you know. Um, mm. Yeah, the Sabuto thing was, I was a big Sabuto fan, you see. I yeah. I remember getting a Sabuto set, like way, the one of the very first, um, what is the word, you know, when they first came out, I think 68 yeah. or something. Um, I won it in a raffle at school. <laughs> and um, I became of this huge fan of it I know it used to always buy it every year buy the teams and whatever mm. now I never got as far as floodlights or anything like that that was too expensive but uh, yeah I, I don't know I just thought it'd be good to put put the words video in in, this, mm. in the song lyrics and it also made for the great sleeve as well um, me and my friend designed the sleeve it had to be a Subidio man with Derry City colours mm. that's Derry City football colours by the way that red and white not Stoke or Southampton yeah, yeah. or whatever so yeah we wanted to get Barry in there. And you got uh, Sabutio in, in, in the uh, music video as well? Oh, yes. we I forgot about that. You're right, Jason. Yeah, yeah, that was good fun. Uh, Julian Temple did that oh. video. It's our best video by far. Yeah, we're playing Sabutio badly, by the way, in the <laughs> video. <laughs> we'd, we'd be, um, I think if there was a proper ref there, we'd been, we'd have been, we would have kicked <laughs> us out for cheating or whatever because we, we're not playing it very well. We're not we're not flicking the kick, as they say.
been a few uh, documentaries on the undertones over the past 20 years and something that's referred to is that there was you know some critics at the band at the time talking about uh, the fact uh, that you guys didn't certainly write about the political situation in Northern Ireland but that seemed to change a little bit with um, It's Going to Happen that which I yeah. think again you, you co-wrote with uh, Mickey. Mickey yeah yeah I think at first you know the first couple of albums we we didn't want to um we, yeah, we just want to escape from it, from the troubles. Mm. You know, we we grew up in Derry and near the bog, bogside in Craig, and so we've seen a lot of violence and experienced it and whatever. And you couldn't even get in the city centre without being searched and et cetera, et cetera. So there was the last thing in our minds to sing about it. We just, you know, we just, we, that was for, at the attitude back then, yeah, politics was for older people. Mm. You know, that was really the way we felt. But then it we did, it's changed by 81. We were getting a bit more mature ourselves and I think we were getting a bit bored with just writing about, you know, chocolate and girls or whatever. So I think, mm. especially for, for me and John anyway, I, um, it, you know, obviously it's going to happen was originally about the hunger strikes. Mm. That was the main thing. It was really horrible. The tension in the streets of Norton and Derry and Belfast, whatever, mm. was was really, really, really bad. So, um, I was quite angry about it myself, so I I, I did write this, these lyrics about hunger strikes. It's going to happen all the time, blah blah blah. Um, but it was pretty pretty crass, you know. I looked at it later, and the verses especially were awful. So I got, I just gave it to Mickey and said, "Rescue this, do what you want with it." Mm-hmm. So he changed it into kind of pop song, it's kind of meaningless pop song, and kept the the chorus as because it was catchy. So yeah, it hints at it, but it's, it's not really. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the lyrics aren't anything to do with the hunger strikes, to be honest. For someone just listening to it generally, it could just be about a, anything, a relationship. Or, oh, yeah. yeah, anything. Yeah, but other songs in, on Positive Touch record, you know, there's a bit subtle, other subtle things that John did as well. Um, he wrote other songs like You're Welcome. Uh, kind of, it hinted at things that welcoming, welcoming so we had friends who... We had done time inside, you know, and they were mm. they came back out, and we became we befriended them, and they were these were very very nice great people, and John that was sorry you know so subtle, it wasn't we were very wary of trying to make it out to you know it's very, it's very difficult to write songs about the troubles I think mm. without being you know being really crass or corny, um you know so yeah it, you have to be. To do it in a smart way, I think. So you you conscious you had fans well, across? Yeah, well, in a way, yes. But we just, I think we didn't make it. It wasn't a conscious decision to do. Like we got to write songs about troubles, but we got to make it. Yeah. We can't. We don't want to upset our fans. It wasn't that. No, it's just 
we, no. we we skirted around it. Yeah, we didn't want to make it too corny, too obvious. As you got towards the, the, the latter end of the, the undertones, the sound got increasingly sophisticated, and I guess yeah, I guess it had to. You, you, the whole sound of music was moved on since '78, yeah. anyway. True, although I mean, Silipride is a bit of a mess because it's it's it suffers because of the kitchen. It's like a kitchen sink production's on it. You know what I mean? Everything's on it. Yeah. There's too many ideas, too many brass strings, girl backing vocals. We 
we basically went over the top. We had a producer who like kind of liked that as well. Mike Hedges, he you know he he done the Cure and the Associates and you know great bands and great records, but um, he kind of layered things on a lot. And I kind of wish you no, know, it's instead we strip things down instead of layering it on. Yeah, it was just it's not bad memories. Just in a pride, it wasn't a happy time for the band because we were Positive Touch hadn't really set the world on fire, and the few singles we put out after that just died to death. So. We were definitely on the way on the way down, you know. Mm. So uh, yeah, and some of the songs on Center Pride shouldn't have been on it, you know. They, mm. uh, in hindsight, maybe after Center Pride, we should have just taken a break, taken a break for a year, or whatever, and then come re- rejuvenated and come back. But mm. but halfway through the tour, British tour, or whatever, I think it was Fergal didn't want to continue on. You know, he thought saw this. It's not much fun anymore because we were plenty less people as well in live and li- live was our best thing you know we were a great live band so when you're plenty half empty halls it's just demoralizing so we all we all kind of wanted to quit by then the title track of yeah. the Cine Pride album that that's, seems to have a bit more of a, a bit more soul sort of yeah. thing starting to come in yeah actually funny enough that, that song again that's me and McGee's song I know I was just thinking about that the other day that song it's there's a bit of um, you know, there's a sixties band called the Left Bank. Yeah, you know, American band. band. Yeah. yeah, brilliant, brilliant song. I I know I I took a bit of something. For, I think it's Pretty Ballerina or something from the Left Bank. Oh, it's a lot beautiful. Yeah. I took uh, that the little piano thing in Center Pride where it breaks down. Um, I took I kind of stole that from 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 that song. So there's a bit of sixties sixties mm. influence. And there on the Center Pride now, and overall the, the Center Pride record LP, there is definitely some sort of soul music kind of going on as well. I know John was listening to a lot of Marvin Gaye and stuff, Motown, but yeah, it's like I said, it suffers for the production and the drum, the sort of 80s. There's that horrible <laughs> 80 drums, 80s drum sound which kind of ruins a lot, swamped in reverb. Yeah. But it is what it is, you know. The sin of crime keeps me from walking away To join the light of God to think of nothing to say The talk of love won't scare my intentions away The talk of love and kiss these ribbons today The cost of love 
Another song of that album that I really like, The Love Parade, and yep. that's got a bit of a, again, a 60s feel, oh, this time a bit more. Yeah, that's a 60s thing. Well, basically, I'll tell you the story of that one. Yeah. That was written in 82, I think, 80, 82. We, the Untrills hardly yeah. played any shows at all, you know, which is terrible. One of the other reasons why we the band sort of collapsed for sort of soon after that, in 83, we we lost the camaraderie through turn playing you know mm. so during the time we were just in Derry twiddling our thumbs trying to write songs and stuff and me me and Mickey decided to form a spoof band with um, Kieran McLaughlin the drummer from who went on to drum for that pit motion we had this spoof band called the Wesleys <laughs> and the Wesleys basically we did 60s covers from the, mainly from Lenny Kay's Nuggets compilation yeah. which we always loved you know the remains and yeah whatever, Strange Love or whatever. So we, we we did about six or seven songs from Nuggets, but we also wrote a, our own song called The Love Parade for the Wesleys. Hmm. And I've got this fantastic, we, we did a couple of gigs in the pubs, and I've got a great cassette of us doing The Love Parade for the first time, you know, live. And it's the way the Undertones really should have done it. Yeah. You know, um, it's just much faster, much more of a 60s vibe. 
I think on on the Sin of Pride record, it's a wee bit, it's a bit slower and it's okay, you know, it's not it's not great, but um, yeah. So that, in fact, I redid it with on my Monotones record, as the way the Wesleys did it. I think that's the way we Dungeons should have done it, really. But it's one of the best songs on on Sin of Pride by far. It's a great great song. was Fergal who basically said that he, he was quitting but actually yeah. I think all of you were ready for a break anyway yeah I, nobody protested when Fergal said he wanted to leave we were all kind of yeah just take the thing out of its misery basically yeah it was I think it was in Sweden or something we were on doing some European shows so yeah we all you know 
we, we all had enough. And we knew Fergal was, was unhappy as well, more mainly. He was mainly unhappy. Mm. I think he, he was more ambitious to do a solo career. So, yeah, we we basically more or less broke up then. And then we, we had to do a few more shows because we were committed to it during the, during the summer of 83. Mm. And that was it. We, we I think the last show might have been we supported Dire Straits in Dublin, I think. Um, yeah. And uh, we were late for that as well. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> late for our own funeral. <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of, but it was weird. After, like a few months after that, I was like, whoa, mm. what's going to happen now? So me, me and Mickey tried to form another band for a while, but it, we got nowhere. It was pretty, pretty bad. We just didn't have the songs. John sort of retreated and he is back in Derry. I, I was living in London with them. Mickey was living in London. Um, yeah, there was a bit of a gap between that and then that petrol emotion. Certainly in that early period of that petrol emotion, you were, you were just, I say just, <laughs> you, you, your role was just predominantly as a, as a bass player, I, not as I a... I was a lowly, lowly bass player. <laughs> well, I see, yeah, I, I became a bass player because um, they didn't need an art guitar player because obviously Raymond, Gorman and John, yeah. or John was yeah. guitarist. So uh, they, I just remember they, they came over in eighty late 84 or whatever and they played me their demos from their four track and I just fell in love with the songs and <clears throat> so yeah. and I was floundering but then I was doing nothing so I begged to join them so they let me in as a bass player so I was so happy and I have to say I loved playing bass mm. with the pedals I loved it those first few years it was so great because it's I don't know playing bass is so liberating you can move around more <laughs> four strings Less, there's two strings less than six, you know. Yeah, no, it was, it was a great, uh, good experience actually. I, I wasn't the greatest, I have to say, I wasn't the greatest bass player because I used, sometimes I, I would play like Peter Hook a bit. I'd play up the neck. Like lead. And, uh, yeah, like lead. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes the songs suffered for that, but then other times it worked. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like big, dis- big decision, I think is is a good case in point because there's a during the break and big decision. Um, I'm playing, you know, two strings up the neck, and uh, it sounds really good. I think a normal bass player wouldn't have done that. Mm. No. Yeah, I mean, a big decision. One of the, that Petrol Emotions major songs, really, and 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 your bass playing in it, as long as as well as everyone else lifts that track. Thank you. Yeah, I think it does. Um, yeah, what a great song. Why that wasn't a hit is still beyond me. Um, mm. You know, it was we everything. Everything was aligned. We were signed to Polydor, yeah. a major label. It was getting radio play, you know, uh, during the day. Um, it just didn't... It got to number 42, I think. Just not enough to get get on top of the pops. If we got on top of the pops, we would have had... I'm pretty convinced about that. So it was, wasn't to be. A big decision. It's got a bit of a sort of anthemic feel to it. Has it got a bit of a political undercurrent as well? Yeah, again, yeah, the lyrics are a little bit, yeah, because, well, the Petrels, we definitely were more political than Undertones, for sure. We wanted to say more, mainly through our sleeve notes on our singles, on our LPs, yeah. talking about um, human rights abuses that was happening in Northern Ireland. And, yeah, big decision. Again, it's not that obvious, you know, but, you know, when you hear 
Mm. Lines like when scum beat down the door, you know, it's, that's obvious. Like soldiers breaking in your, mm. beating down your front door to search and wreck wreck the house, you know, whatever. It's some things like that. Yeah. Didn't, but again, you know, again, it didn't do us any favors because, you know, obviously Northern Ireland was very, you know, sensitive subject for the powers that be. So if you're singing against it, they're, if you're trying to pinpoint or point out um, uh, things that were hmm. being abused, whatever, human rights, whatever, um, you know, the establishment take note and they don't like that. So we're, com- we're kind of convinced, hmm. you know, shortly after Big Decision, we, we were kind of, um, you know, we, wouldn't, we were hardly getting played in the radio anymore. So maybe somebody had a word, whatever. We don't know. We'll never know, I suppose. Amazing to think that your brother actually then left left the band. Yeah, well, John decided to leave. He wanted to move back to Derry actually with his wife and his daughter because I think right. he never liked touring. John, you know, even with the undertones, he never liked touring. So I think, uh, yeah, I think he they, they were, he was homesick and his wife was homesick. So I think they they just wanted to 
have an easier life, whatever, and, and bring up the Wayans, the kids, you know, in, in Derry. Um, it was a big blow for us so at the time. We were kind of like in shock. That's the third LP in the Millennium Psychosis Blues. It was just before that, and, you know, it was mm. the band could easily have called it a day after that. But um, luckily we didn't. We decided to regroup and we got a different bass player. I moved to guitar again, back to six strings, and, and we came out with Chemi Crazy, which is one of our best LPs. And you, and you, you kept on going for another five or six years. I, I've chosen uh, one of uh, the, the tracks that you co-wrote, I think this time with uh, Raymond and uh, Too Late Blues. Yeah, Too Late Blues, yeah. I just played that there mm. before we talked this interview, Jason. Um, I forgot how good the guitar is, not amazing? Yeah. Well, a great absolutely. guitar song. Yeah. song. Uh, yeah, mainly Raymond's song. Actually, I just, I came up with them. There's a little middle eight bit, uh, instrumental middle eight. And that's how I get a credit in that, but that's mainly Raymond's. Yeah, what a great song. Great song. Yeah, Fireproof, that came out in Fireproof, uh, LP 93. It's, yeah, it's, again, it's really sad because that, that's a great, great LP, mm. I think. And it just, you know, by the end, we, we again, we were floundering. We, we had to put it out on our own label. We had been dropped by Virgin. And uh, nobody would pay much attention to us, basically, in the, in the media. And we were hardly getting played in the radio. So it was, again, tough. But we came up with the goods because that, that, that's a great record. Great record. And pre, pre-internet days as well. So actually... There was fewer outlets to get your music. Indeed. Yeah. Um, back then, reviews meant a lot, you know. You'd, so if you got a good review, yeah. you'd sell more records. And reviews for Fireproof weren't too bad, if memory serves me correct. But, you know, it, we didn't get the big you know, features that we needed, really.
And so then after that petrol emotion, it took a, a break for a few years? Yeah, or? well, I got a kind of normal job for, for the first time. I, yeah. Well, yeah. I wouldn't say proper job. Well, basically, I was working in an organic fruit and veg office, the place that sold yeah. organic fruit and veg. It was this kind of office work. I was a packer for a while, first of all, packing the veg, and then um, I graduated to the office answering phones and stuff. But that, that only lasted for a year and a half or something. Yeah. Meanwhile, I was um, I was doing stuff with Raymond, actually. We have band, sort of a band called the Wave Walkers, but we never made it any records. Then right. I was dabbling with samplers, sample, sampler, archive sampler. Did this, this sort of project with uh, this girl singer called Athena. Constantine. The, the name of the project was X Valdez, and um, we went to France. We basically did like six songs. We did a six-song EP record thing, um, which came out on a Japanese label only. You know, I didn't really do anything, but it was good to do to be involved in that. That's why we did Everlasting Breath for the first time. Well, now it's for the second time actually because the Petrels did it. Oh, first of all, oh, I didn't yeah, know the Petrels. Yeah. Yeah, the Petrels did it for Final Flame, but it never made it oh. because well, I don't know why. It, 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 I don't know. The version <laughs> isn't. To be honest, the ver- Petrels version isn't great. Yeah, so maybe we decided to keep it off for that. So yeah, that was my second attempt at doing it with Athena singing, and it's a different, completely. Well, not that mm. different, but yeah, it's more uh, French. Mm. When when we did Everlasting Breath in France in Paris. It was uh, Xavier, the producer. He kind of it was more programmed, programmed drums and stuff, and double bass and things like that. But it was a re- it's a good version actually. It's very good.
before we uh, talk about the undertones getting back together, you, you um, Alan McGee, got in touch with you or vice versa? Yeah, around this time of the you know XLDs thing, I was also so I was doing um, sort of you know I had a sampler and I was messing about sampling things and kind of doing some kind of music you know on instrumental music like that. Again, this is not a French connection. I first put out an EP under just O'Neill, my surname, four-track EP on Artifact, was this label, indie label. And then after that, Alan McGee, I think he met a hair dad, and he heard some demos I was I had done, and maybe was, I gave it to Kevin Shields, and Kevin Shields liked it and gave it to Alan. So anyway, Alan wanted to sign me for pop, his pop tone, his new pop tones label at the time to put out um, a whole LPs worth of this instrumental sample stuff. So uh, that was that was great. I was so happy to, to put that out on Alan's label. Um, came out in CD only. Didn't sell anything, but <laughs> I didn't care. <laughs> and there's actually there's one track. Actually, there's one track I wouldn't mind you, you playing, Jason, actually, called Dynamite in Philadelphia. Was this basically you on a... A Mac or yeah, uh, no, didn't have a Mac back then. Um, it's, this is me on um, an Atari. Oh wow, the, like an ST or something. Yeah, I was uh, Cubase. I was using Cubase software, right, yeah. music software, really basic stuff. You know, really, I'm not a very technical person, mm. um, so it has to be simple for me. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, it was you know it was great. It was, it was really it was great fun. It was really it was kind of because um, by the end I. Personal things I was I split up with my wife and stuff and it was kind of cathartic to yeah. to do this kind of music, I'm very different from the undertones, mainly samples, a few live guitar, bass, whatever drums, but uh, a lot of backwards brass and uh, strings and things and cascading strings, whatever. Yeah, is it's off its time, but some of it's still really good I think. Yeah. And like I said, I'm just happy to get it out. It was brilliant.
So a, a quiet revolution in a way was you get back in on a more regular basis into the yeah. into music? More or less. Like I say, it didn't do much, but didn't sell anything. But it was, it gave me confidence. Yeah. Really, give me confidence like, that I must be on to something if I could get this out on on Alan's label, you know. So, mm. so it, it was it was really, it was great. It was a great confidence booster for sure. And then that, that coincided with the undertones getting together. Then that was also around that same time, two two thousand, you know. So around the period of a, a quiet revolution, basically you reformed the undertones, but, but basically Fer- Fergal wasn't interested. No, uh, Fergal wasn't. In, we didn't ask Fergal. Um, ah, okay. No, we we were never going to ask Fergal. We knew he would say no. Yeah. So no, we we basically we got offered to play this place called the Nerve Center in Derry. It's just been opened, um, multimedia center, and um, you know they asked the undertones to, to open it because being who we were and all that, would we reform? So um, we wondered who'd sing. So we Billy had been in a band with um, Paul McLoon in the past after the undertones called. The Carolines, I think they were called, and um, so Billy suggested using Paul, and I, I'd I'd heard of him, but I didn't really see him perform. So we basically we we all got together and we kind of auditioned, so to speak, and uh, right away we knew this is going to work. He, he ticked all the right boxes. He was mm. a great singer. Mm. He was from Derry, which is you know crucial. He's got the accent, yeah, and he's uh, he. Yeah, he's got the chops and he can sing. He can sing really, really well. And he's funny. He's a funny guy. So, um, yeah, we're only supposed to do two shows for the Nerve Centre and then break up again and that would have been it. But because that went so well, I mean, it was a really amazing two nights, as you can imagine. Um, People travel from all over Britain for that. Mm. Thinking it's never going to happen again. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you know, the following year is thought, well... We, do a few? we got offered like um, um, oxygen, no, uh, some big festival in Dublin for a lot of money. So we went, well, yeah, why not? And basically, it spiraled from there. Yeah. And then we decided to do a single with the Thrill Me, which originally came out on um, some label through Rough Trade, I think. That's a great. Oh, that's a great. It thing. holds up, doesn't it? It holds oh, up. Ah, that could easily be on. Mm. On an early undertones record, I think. Yeah. Easily. Yeah, it's a great John O'Neill song. Um, great memories of recording that as well. And from there, even John, John Peel was playing that a lot, which was great. So from there, we um, then decided to, well, we might as well do a record. You know, our first LP. Our first LP with Paul. So that's where I get what you need. When That, that was 2004, I think. You know, then we did an our record, then get what you need. A couple of years later, so yeah, you know, we kind of felt it was important to play play live. We mm. instead of just doing all the old songs, we'd also do four four or five songs from the new record as well to keep it just to keep it interesting and subject to the current hiatus. And hopefully, everything will get back to normal and and uh, things will be okay. But yeah, yeah, the band's uh, still very much playing live and hopefully recording as well. Well, <clears throat> don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> The touchy subject recording. You know, we haven't done anything new for since much too late single, which came out record store day back in two thousand fourteen, I think it was. It was a long oh, time. Okay. And we keep saying, Oh, we gotta get it now, get together and do an all record but it keeps getting Oh yeah, we'll do it we'll do it then, we'll do it then we'll keep getting pushed 
push back, push back, push back. Um, and then I did my Monotones record, so I was too busy doing that. Mm. And John's been working on his project as well for the last few years, which he's back working with Lucky Morris from, you know, he had a project called Rare back in oh yeah in two thousand. Yeah. Um, he's now back with Lucky. It's not it's not Rare, but it's similar type stuff. So he's working on that. So he's really busy. So yeah, I don't know when if we'll ever do something together again. You know, the whole band. But you're still playing. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, yeah, yeah. The live thing's still. We're still really enjoying that. Um, obviously, we've had to. I think the rest of this year is more or less written off. You know, we had a we were supposed to be in America right now, actually. Gosh. And it, yeah, we're supposed to be in East Coast of America, so we had to cancel that. Um, UK tour, we were supposed to be doing some shows next month, that got cancelled. Glastonbury, we were supposed to be doing that, that got cancelled. Gosh. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, we'll see. I mean, there might be something going on, maybe se- September, October. There's offers still coming in, so if everything's back to normal, obviously we'd jump at it, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's bad, bad time to be a musician.
Our next track is the everlasting yeah and a little bit of uh-huh and a whole lot of oh yeah. <laughs> Am I right? There's a bit of a connection with the uh, the re- reformation, temporary reformation of, of that petrol emotion about 10 or so years ago? Yeah, that, um, the pet, that petrol emotion reformed in 2009 for a few shows. We did a few, just a few dates in Britain and Ireland and then we went to to America as well for a couple of shows. And then, you know, Steve Mack, the singer, lives in Seattle. So, you know, we, we, we went back, mm. back to London again, there were four of us. We we just decided, me, Raymond, Kieran and Brendan, that it'd be good to continue on. Um, maybe and just, you know, we'll just not get a singer, just um, do our own thing and start writing songs again. So, um, you know, we, we just did a lot of rehearsals and eventually it became the everlasting, yeah. Um, it took took a few years to build up the songs, but um, yeah, it was just it was really exciting at the time. And uh, it was, we're we're basically we haven't finished. You know, it took us because we didn't have the money. We we had to raise money through pledge music, you know, yeah. um, to pay for the recordings and stuff like that. Uh, so it was a bit long winded to get it get it all done in time, get it all done. But um, yeah, we really really pleased with the results uh, uh, with Anima Rising record and a little bit of a whole lot of yes again I just played that recently there because um, I knew you were going to mention it and uh, it hmm. still holds up still sounds great it's really exciting really really great yeah but it's very petals I think Everlasting is really because it's obviously there's four of us were in the petals you know so yeah it wouldn't be that much out of place for the petal motion record and we're We've, we're actually finally working on a new record, a new LP. Um, we've recorded three songs in January, and um, we were all due to get back again, uh, you know, just before this whole thing crisis took off. So um, we're all again. We're just going to have to wait and wait it out, and hopefully get back to back again. Maybe who knows, June, July. And start uh, start getting in the studio again, yeah. A little bit of uh-uh, whole lot of oh yeah. A little bit of uh-uh, whole lot of oh yeah. A little bit of uh-uh, whole lot of oh yeah. A little bit of uh-uh, whole lot of oh yeah.
and obviously <laughs> it's taken us this long, but we we haven't mentioned your own, you know, your own solo material. <laughs> <laughs> Got uh, Damien O'Neill and the Monotones, uh, Sweet and Sour from your refit, revise, reprise LP. Uh, you'd recorded some solo stuff a few years yeah. before that. So yeah, 2014, um, I put out a solo single um, called uh, It's. As I was trapped in a cage um, on Overground Records, um, that stemmed from a basically a few months before that. Me and John actually had written songs for a a play that was being performed in Belfast and Derry um, called Reenergize. The story was of these old punks got together, reformed to form a band, to reform their old band again. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> they, he the playwright. Gary Mitchell wanted me and John to write the songs, punks or punky songs for the play. So we, we did, we obliged that. And that was really good fun, actually, and a bit of a challenge, but it was great. So then I decided to to record a couple of the two, two tracks from the play, the the, the, my, the ones that I, I felt were the best, Trap in a Cage and Love Makes the World Go Round. That was the B-side. So I did that myself in London at Press Play Studios, and um, that came out in Overground. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that was, I was again, again another confidence booster because it was mm. just turned out really good. So I decided after that to keep on, sort of writing songs and maybe doing LPs worth, um, some old stuff and new stuff, and that's how the Monotones record came about. Really, it took again, it was a, a long process. Took about two years, but I was gradually going in the studio weekends or whatever and putting down some guitar and then we'd get drums down you know again raising the money for it always takes a while but yeah it took took a while but it, it i think it turned out pretty good a bit more of a straight ahead rock sound at, at times um part something's quite poppy as well um a bit eclectic i wanted to do some, redo some songs like love parade like i mentioned earlier like the wesley's version yeah. a couple of petrol songs non-mark from Kemi Crazy with my song. I never really liked the version on Kemi Crazy, so I wanted to redo it in a different way. Compulsion, that's a actual four, the original four-track demo. I didn't, I just put that on as it is, because um, I really like. There's a kind of charm about about that version that's on the Monotones record mm-hmm. than the the Petrol's that Petrol Motion version. So yeah, you know, and then I had these instrumentals. Uh, I've had those for a few, you know, which I really liked, Angels and Tricon Street and things like that. Mm. So a bit of songs, a bit of instrumental, a bit of a hodgepodge. And uh, yeah, I'd, um, it was, again, turned out, like I said, I, I was delighted to get it out and I did it through Pledge Music, like like the Everlasting Year we did ours through Pledge. So they that really helped because I was able to get, you know, get through a network of people, fans to buy it and stuff. So it was, Okay, it's really good. Is Dimple Discs your own imprint? Yeah, me and Brian O'Neill, a friend of mine, no relation, oh, okay. just a really good friend of mine. Well, it's our label, and um, yeah, I'm going to. I'm working on another record now. Right. This again, it's going to it might take a while, but hopefully, I'll get something out again on on Dimple Disc on you know my own my own stuff.
this label you have uh, just to lead in to our final track we have yeah a track that you've played on but but it's not you <laughs> yeah it's not me i don't sing that good um yes eileen gogan um she's a great great singer from dublin yeah brian basically befriended her uh eileen was was um she sang you know when mike you know the you know mike or disney i respond they reformed yeah, they reformed yeah. last year um <clears throat> we're really good friends with shauna hagan guitar player and um, basically Eileen sang some songs with Michael Disney for a few shows in Dublin and, and some Cork I think it was as well and I think over here in London when they played the Royal Festival Hall so um, that's how we got to know Eileen and uh, Eileen she's done a few solo records already and she 
see, basically, she she sent Brian a song. Said, "Can you?" She she heard the mom, my mom and toes record. She really liked my guitar playing. So she said, "Can you get Damien to do a, a, a lead break on on one of her songs?" You know, and um, it was on "Don't Let Me Sleep." Really good song. So I, I thought I always like challenges. So I thought it's very different from what I normally do. But I, I you know, did my homework and worked it out and it turned out great. So then I ended up playing a few other tracks on her LP, which is we're going to put out now on Dimble Disc very soon. So Don't Let Me Sleep, the advanced single prior to the album then? Yes, the LP, I think it's coming out in next month, in May. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Damien. It's been so great to talk to you and hear such a, a cross-section of material and actually very varied. In- yeah, it, it, yeah, it's great. I'm, I'm pleased about that. Yeah, yeah um, it's very varied, actually. I suppose the, the most I suppose a quiet revolution is most different from everything else. Yeah. I suppose I'm quite proud of all that, of all of them, actually, really. Mm. It's great to hear it, everything all in one place. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jason. All right, then. Bye-bye. Take care. All the best. Bye. Don't let me sleep Bad memories might have their way
Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.